What I what I learned in this in this journey um, pretty quickly is that uh, it's really hard to find places that are. Um, it's hard to get away from the light, you know, from all the light. It, it gets dark at night everywhere, but that dark has become a relative term, and um, it's really hard to find a place, at least in the lower 48, for example, that where it really gets back to as dark as it used to be before artificial lighting. You know, eventually that's what I wanted to find. Darkness is a natural part of life and better to engage with it and embrace it and learn how to live with it. Um, and I think faith has a, a really important uh, role to play in that. It's been really great to be invited to, you know, different places to talk about it and um, and to hear from people who've read the book. It's been, it's been, it, I mean, it changed my life. There's no, there's no other way to say it. King David writes in Psalm 8 that when I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Do the heavens matter to us today? How can a deeper appreciation for the heavens strengthen and encourage us in our faith? This is Good Heavens, a podcast taking a deeper look into the heavens to edify and encourage believers and to glorify God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Darkness. What comes to mind? What do we mean by darkness? Certainly in Scripture there is a kind of moral and spiritual darkness, but there is also a good kind of darkness, both sorrow, when we can't see a way out of our suffering, and in physical darkness, where God works imperceptibly beyond our ability to see, as seeds in the darkness of loamy soil germinating and sprouting are outside the purview of our vision. In Exodus, we read that God worked all night in separating the waters of the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea. 
And in the Psalms, God tells us that the darkness and the light are alike to him. And it is in the dark that David contemplates the heavens. It is in the dark that we can take in the grandeur of the glory of God. And it is in the dark, on our beds, that we often pray. Farmer, poet, and author Wendell Berry describes this common experience in a short poem about a man lying on a bed in the dark. He is fearful and tired and wondering if God hears his prayers. Berry writes, quote, He breathes the prayer of his fear that gives a light by which he sees only himself lying in the dark, a low mound asking almost nothing at all, and then... Long yet before dawn comes what he had not thought, love that causes him to stir. Like the dead in the grave, being remembered, his own love or heavens he does not know. But now it is all around him. It comes down upon him like a summer rain falling, slowly, quietly, in the dark. End quote. Have you ever stopped to wonder why we fear the darkness? Have you ever considered the goodness of sorrow or physical darkness? Can we possibly ever have too much light? On this episode of Good Heavens, I talk with Paul Bogard, author of The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. Paul went on a dark sky adventure of a lifetime, not just to stargaze, but to learn more about our relationship with the dark how it is needful but much neglected. Paul shares his experiences in traveling about to some of the brightest and darkest places on the planet and shares with us the wisdom he gleaned from talking to experts about light pollution, stargazing, and better practices in engaging the night and in the use of artificial light. So come and see how darkness is not something to be feared, but part of the very fabric of creation that is instrumental in helping us to see the glory of God. Paul Bogart. The experience of knowing a truly dark night and a truly a naturally starry sky, you know, without light pollution is something that has always influenced our relation our human relationship with um with religion with our faith i think it's just that that firsthand experience of as i say coming face to face with the universe uh, mm. that you know leads us naturally to um you know to contemplate who we are and where we came from and where we might be going and and all those big questions and um so there's there's that part of it and that was that was common wherever I went and whoever I talked to just that, you know, the, um, having, getting to have that, that overwhelming experience of, you know, standing under a, a truly dark sky. Um, and then there was, you know, 
Probably my favorite chapter in the book is the chapter called No Darkness, K-N-O-W, Darkness, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, all about metaphorical darkness. And um, that's where that interview comes from with David Satry, the minister <clears throat> in northern Wisconsin. And uh, that was, you know, the, I think he, he was talking about the value of of metaphorical darkness, of hard times, of of accepting that life brings us darkness and, and difficult times. And we have to, you know, that's a, that is a place where faith can come into, um, into play and that's important. And that, um, you know, for him, um, faith isn't, you know, having all the answers. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's believing um, even when you don't have all the answers or you can't, you know, see everything clearly. So I think, um, we live in a society just in general that is so addicted to light, you know, to both um, to literal light, electric light, electronic light now, and, but also the, the light of, um, I guess when I say that, I mean the light, the artificial light of easy answers and wanting things to be um, easy. And I just, I just don't think life is that way. I think life, darkness is a natural part of life and better to, engage with it and embrace it and learn how to live with it. Um, and I think faith has a, a really important uh, role to play in that. Yeah. You, you did touch on some things that, that kind of helped uh, focus a perspective that I've often struggled with myself. I, I, I've been a Christian for about 27 years now. I was an adult convert. I wasn't raised in the, in the faith, but um, the, I, I love what you said about briefly you'd mentioned, I think it was in that chapter of knowing darkness, no darkness, um, Jacob wrestling at night mm-hmm. with, with the angel and the work that God does uh, at night. Um, I just read this morning about uh, the story of the, the crossing of the sea of reeds or the red sea is, as it is commonly known where God works all night to separate uh, mm-hmm. the water. And it, it also brought to mind the, the passage in Genesis with Abraham being led outside by God and shown the stars. And he said, count the stars if you are able, right? Uh, and, and he likens Abraham's descendants as generations to the stars. And of course, the Psalm, the, the old Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And uh, part of that, you need darkness to, to really see that and to really take that in. But one thing I think that that, that your book really helped me uh, to clarify was to this distinction, and you put it so well, you say, you know, that, that, that darkness, bad, light, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of a, a very simplistic uh, sort of mixing of what I would say would be, you, you have the metaphorical evil, maybe moral darkness. Uh, that is maybe confused with the idea of a of a physical darkness, which is good. And I think for a lot of people, it's hard to conceptualize or, or separate the idea that that darkness in general is bad, but there's actually really good darkness, uh, a, a healthful darkness. And then you know what you just said about light so wonderfully the the idea that that light can be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the, the metaphor you just used, you know, there's that hypocrisy of simplicity um, that, that we want to just have all the pat answers. I talked to an atheist friend of mine uh, several, a couple of years ago, I was a guest on his podcast and he said, you know, he'd been given all the right answers by the time he was 18. Mm-hmm. Then he went to college and, and then it was like, I never heard any of this. 
<laughs> Nobody ever told me about this. What about this and that and this and that? And so there's this general fear, I think, and I think you capture this well. Uh, we're afraid of the dark, maybe, maybe because we haven't separated in our minds the idea of the goodness of physical darkness mm-hmm. versus the metaphorical darkness of spiritual and, 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 and evil. Did you, do you, does that make sense? Did you see that as, as a sort of a mixed metaphor? People were just generally afraid of the dark or? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that, and the, you know, what you, what you say about it, it just, it gets reduced so often to light is good and dark is bad. And uh, therefore more light is better. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yes. Well, that's American, isn't it? We would more is better. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, so, you know, if we talk, you know, specifically about, light, you know, literal artificial lights. Uh, and I, I describe light pollution as the overuse and the misuse of artificial light. So it's, you know, artificial light is not the problem. It, you know, artificial light is amazing. It's wonderful. It, it, you know, we're, and we're going to have it. The, the problem is, is the way that we use it and, uh, and, and just using too much of it. And I think, you know, we can, you can, it's kind of neat how it, it, um, we can talk about these things back and forth between the literal and the metaphorical um, too. But I think that, you know, too much light uh, will blind you uh, both, you know, literally you, you cannot see if, if too much light is shining into your eyes and um, you know, metaphorically, if, if you uh, have all the answers, quote unquote, you know, that kind of light, you will be blinded to um, you know, to other viewpoints, to other perspectives, to other realities, um, Mm. you know, all those, all those things. So, mm. you know, life is made of both light and dark and we, we need both. The both mm. are important um, for, mm. our, for our physical health, for our um, psychological health. And I think for our spiritual health as well. Yes. You have a, a great picture um, in the book. I think it was very eye opening, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, where you were, uh, you, you took a picture of, of somebody's security light over their garage and you showed the picture with your hand in front of the security light, and then you took your hand away. It was two different images. And when you had the image of the security light uncovered by your hand, you couldn't see the individual that was standing in a gate just beyond it. Yeah, exactly. But then when you covered the light with your hand, you could actually see uh, the person standing in the gate. And so the whole idea is it, conceptually, it, it really hit home, you know, because you think, Oh, security light, I'm secure, but you step out your back porch. You can't see somebody standing at your gate because that light is so bright. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think that was a core thing. It reminded me also of an Emily Dickinson poem, mm-hmm. um, late 1800s. She says, uh, tell all the truth, but tell it slant success and yeah. circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle, dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was exactly kind of what you were saying in the book. Light is there, but let's use it intelligently and more is not necessarily better. Yeah, that's right. I like to say let's use it intelligently and thoughtfully and uh, use it as a good neighbor. Um, mm. One of the one of the aspects of light pollution is something called light trespass, <laughs> where yes. uh, you have light from one property shining, you know, into another property. And I know I'm sure your listeners, many of them, have had this experience of 
somebody else's light shining into their house or into their property and um that's light trespass and that's not that's not a good use that's not good neighbor use of of lighting Mm, indeed it isn't and i've i've lived in those neighborhoods especially if you live in an apartment complex yeah um or any major urban metropolis uh you had mentioned somebody a neighborhood a, a uh, an example in a neighborhood where somebody moved in and just lit up their house like uh, like Christmas <laughs> and, you know, lights in the pool, lights on the porch, lights all around the house. Um, but, you know, that's a, it's, it's such a wonderful book to, to sort of open your eyes to the necessity of darkness, if you will. I really, of course, whether you think the earth is, is created or not, this idea of 12, 12 hours in light, 12 hours in darkness, this constant rotation of the earth in light and darkness you know, you think of that versus a, a, a planet that's tidal locked to its sun. One half of the planet is baking in the sun all the time and the other half is in complete darkness. I mean, this would be for biological life nearly impossible to inhabit. Mm-hmm. And and so as you say in the book, it, it's so necessary that we have this. Uh, Wendell Berry, you have a poem in there by him at the end of the book. It's wonderful. And, and I love Wendell Berry. He's got a, a book, a collection called Sabbath Poems. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes is talking about the darkness and its relation to restfulness and Sabbath rest. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that in my own life as well. I love backyard stargazing. I live in a Bortle, a Bortle scale. My Bortle scale here in Poolville is probably about a four, maybe yeah. a five. Um, but it's still pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. But I want to uh, I want to I want to give my listeners the opportunity to hear about your adventure because it's <laughs> not just about light pollution. But you went on the bucket list dark sky adventure of a lifetime. Uh, you went from Paris to to London. You went to Morocco. You went you went all over the place. You were everywhere and saw some of the most incredible dark skies anybody has ever seen in centuries. So why don't you tell us, how did this adventure get started? How did you get into this? What started you along this path? You know, when people say, where did this book come from? I, I say, mm-hmm. well, it, yeah, it came from uh, growing up in Minnesota and, and having a cabin in the northern part of the States. And, um, you know, just having that experience of the Milky Way overhead and uh, a really dark sky just kind of imprinted on me as a child, um, having that firsthand experience again. And later in my life after college, when I was uh, wanting to learn the sky, I realized, you know, I'd always loved the stars, but I'd never really learned the constellations. And uh, Mm. so I started um, trying to teach myself the constellations very quickly. When you do that, you find out about light pollution (laughs) and uh, all the things you can't see. Um, and that kind of gradually uh, turned into, I began writing about the issue and um, eventually proposed a book um, and uh, set off on this journey. And, um, you know, I wanted to go, the book itself is, it kind of follows the Bortle scale. And uh, for folks who don't know about it, the Bortle scale is essentially a scale of darkness that goes from nine down to one with nine being our brightest places and one being uh, natural darkness with no evidence of artificial light in the sky or on the horizon anywhere. And so the book kind of follows that journey. So I started in some bright places and worked my way down to some really dark places. Um, and that gave me, you know, just kind of a, a, a path to follow. And uh, so I think the first story I tell is, is stargazing on the Las Vegas Strip with uh, <laughs> there actually is something called the, 
the Las Vegas Astronomical Society. Um, yeah, who would have known that? I'd never. Right, exactly. It, it's, not a, <laughs> it's not a joke. It's uh, they're very serious, and um, the president of of, of that group uh, agreed to meet me down, and we down on the strip, and we set up our telescopes, and we could see um, a handful of stars, remarkably. Uh, but um, and from there, as you said, I went to Paris and London uh, to kind of go back in time a little bit and look at um, gas lamps and um, a place like Paris, which is uh, so much of its um, of its personality comes through its lighting, um, which is uh, very conscious. Um, you know, out to a number of national parks where it was uh, a really wonderful experience out there. Some, some, um, some far flung places, uh, you know, the Canary islands off the coast of Africa and um, uh, Sark Island in the English channel and, and places like that, just to get a sense of some places that were, um, you know, Sark is a really neat place. There are no, uh, um, and no cars or trucks, no motorized vehicles, just the only thing they, they allow tractors during the day, but at night it's, uh, so you know, have no street lights, no traffic lights. And, um, I just wanted to go to some of these places where it, it felt like you were stepping back in time mm. to, um, because it's so, uh, what I, what I learned in this, in this journey, um, pretty quickly is that, uh, it's really hard to find places that are, um, it's hard to get away from the light, you know, from all the lights and yes. um, people, you know, it, it gets dark at night everywhere, but that dark has become a relative term. And um, it's really hard to find a place, at least in the lower 48, for example, that um, where it really gets back to as dark as it used to be before artificial lighting. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, eventually that's what I wanted to find. Yes. How long was your How long was your excursion through the world of looking for these places? How long were you traveling? I would say kind of a year, more or less. Um, I had done uh, some of the some of the travel before I officially um, signed the book contract, and so I was able to you know incorporate some of that. And then, uh, but I had kind of a year from the time I signed the contract to when I could when I turned in the turned in the book and maybe, maybe some time after that when I was um, revising, but it was really, you know, it was a process of, of kind of going out and then coming back home and kind of uh, arranging the next trip and then going out and then coming back and um, over the course of, um, I guess, 12 or 15 months. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, this, this came out in uh, 2014, correct? Or was it late 2013? Yeah, I think uh, maybe the hardcover was 2013 and the paperback in 2014. Okay, have you have you done any follow up on this? Have you uh, revisited or have uh, how was the how was the reception of the book? I'm I'm kind of late to the party here, yeah. <laughs> here to it, but uh, how how has it been since received? It's been great. I mean, it's been a wonderful experience for me, both writing the book um, and certainly even you know researching the book was fun. Um, getting to go to some of these places. And then since the books come out, it's, um, it's been really well received and I've been invited to some of the places that I wrote about like London, uh, and then some places that I didn't actually write about like, um, Mexico and, and Colombia, um, and getting to go to South America for the first time was, was wonderful, but it's an issue that, you know, resonates across the globe, um, 
uh, for different reasons. And, and people, you know, just the idea that we can't see the stars because there's too much light around us is something that um, everybody, uh, you know, with, with some exceptions here and there, everybody will understand that problem. And, and um, so it's been really great to be invited to, you know, different places to talk about it and, um, and to hear from people who've read the book. It's been, it's been, it, I mean, it changed my life. There's no, there's no other way to say it. That's phenomenal. John was telling me, and when I mean John, I mean for the listeners, uh, Dr. John Barentine, Barentine, who is the uh, public policy director for the International Dark Sky Association. Uh, we just did an interview with John. It's a wonderful interview on the on the backstory of of how uh, the, the IDA began and the whole desire for uh, preserving night skies. But Paul, you seem to have uh, hit on something. Uh, now, many people would probably hear this and go, well, that's all fine and dandy if you're researching a book, but really the places that you have visited are not, are not out of reach of most of us. Correct. Yeah. And that was, I'm glad you noticed that because that was very intentional. Um, you know, when I started writing or, and people would hear about the book, they would say things like, well, why don't you go to, um, you know, out into the ocean or go to the, you know, Amazon or something like, you know, like that. And I, <laughs> I'm, uh, I have nothing against going to those places. I'd love, I'd love to go to those places, but the point of the book was really to look at our experience of, of night and darkness now where, you know, where most of us live, what's it like. Um, and so that meant, you know, spending a lot of time in cities and suburbs and, um, and the like. And then, um, as you say, trying to go to some places where, um, that are accessible, you know, so, um, the national parks out west and uh, even out east, um, uh, Acadia up in Maine, places like that where a lot of Americans go um, and where a lot of people would like to go and talking about those places. Because I really, I really just, I want to draw people's attention to the beauty and importance of night and natural darkness. And so, you know, it's, it's, it, I could tell a good adventure about being, you know, in the Arctic and, and what's it like there, but you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody's going to go there. Um, right. That's a different story. Yes. Um, that, that, yes. Isn't what I, that isn't what I set out to do. Right. You've, you've made, you've, you've trod a path that uh, is accessible to most of our feet. And uh, so mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's wonderful. You could replicate uh, the journeys that you've taken, well, of course, with, uh, our current uh, situation. I know some national parks are reopening. Some have here in Texas on a limited basis. Mm -hmm. um, I know that uh, some parks in California are going to reopen Death Valley uh, when California reaches its stage three reopening phase. But uh, there is hope that national parks could probably be opening up again by the end of the summer or maybe even earlier. Um, so this, this path that you have trod for us is well-worn and, and accessible to everyone. And I think that's, Again, another underlying point of the book, the dark skies, you know, at one time was, were accessible to all of us and we should be aware of, and, and I think you do a great job here in pointing out that, you know, some of the experiences of people seeing these things for the first time, seeing the stars, uh, you have a, a chapter, a, a, a vignette where you're talking about stargazing with a particular group of people that may have been up in Maine, um, where some of the people that were attending had were saying that they had never seen stars like mm -hmm. this before. And, you know, here are people that have lived all their lives in big cities coming out into the, to a dark sky reserve or a park 
seeing these, seeing the stars uh, in all of their glory for the first time. I mean, you, you must have seen that quite a bit. People's surprise, shock and awe. I did see it. I, um, and I, I heard that story again and again and again, kind of people would, you know, when I, when people would tell me that they had visitors from Tokyo or they had visitors from, you know, Manhattan or, you know, whatever places that, you know, when you look up, you see, you know, if you're lucky, you see 20 stars. Um, and then all of a sudden these folks are in a place where they see, you know, 2000 individual stars and, you know, the Milky Way is a backdrop and it's, uh, you know, if you've never seen something like that, um, it, it, it can bring you to your knees. It's really, uh, um, a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And, um, you know, I, I just, I often think of that, uh, quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who, who said, you know, if, um, if the stars came out one night in a thousand years, how men would believe and adore. And I think he says something, you know, talk about the city of God, which has been shown kind of thing. And mm. it's just this, you know, wonderful quote about um, how we, back in his day, you know, in 1836, he was saying, you know, there's so many stars, we just take them for granted. But I think it gets to that point of, you know, um, if we haven't seen the night sky, a true night sky, and we get a chance to see it. it it's, it takes your breath away. Absolutely. It does. Uh, one of the chapters I resonated with too, I think no darkness was my favorite chapter as well. You talked to a gentleman, uh, Eric Wilson, um, mm-hmm. who was an mm-hmm. author and uh, he, you had a couple of pages about, and I love the connections here. If we, I think it was Betson. You had also mentioned Henry Betson who had uh, spent a year out on the Cape. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Um, under, you know, and really, uh, really living in and among natural dark skies. And uh, Betson says, or you have Betson saying as uh, calling, the, there's a poetry of darkness. Yep. And um, your conversation with Mr. Wilson, uh, talking about the metaphorical dark, darkness, you say, uh, 168 here, you say, quote, the value of metaphorical darkness is told everywhere if we look for it in our poetry religion and art. But the key word here is if everyone experiences the darkness of difficult times, if not depression, then the loss of infinite kinds, including simply the everyday passing of time to think that melancholy, which seems a natural response to the coexisting realities of beauty and mortality Mm. is the same as clinical depression is tragically mistaken. Mm. And I loved the passage because it it also brought to mind not only poetry, art, of course, but uh, Vincent van Gogh, Mm-hmm. Uh, and his famous painting that that hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art. You did a great job there. I didn't know how many people had passed by that particular piece of work. 150 million people. Or 50, how many people a year see it? I think it's 50 million. Yeah. I haven't looked at that in a while, but I think that that's right. But the, the docent that is standing there telling everybody to back up. <laughs> right. Yep, exactly. But but here, you know, I, and I know a little bit of history of that painting. It's I we I wrote a book uh, came out last summer about the cosmos, and uh, we did some research on that particular painting. I didn't know about the the number of people that had visited it, but uh, Van Gogh painted that in an asylum in in Remy, France, Saint mm-hmm. Remy, I think mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing that correctly, where Van Gogh struggled with depression and melancholy. Um, but he painted that in a time where during great poverty and uh, great sorrow, and yet it's come to be the most tremendous work of art 
everybody recognizes it. You don't have to be an art connoisseur to know it. But I, I just loved how you combined the ideas of, of, of melancholy, of poetry, of religious and artistic expression in relation to dark skies. That was just a, a wonderful way to, to kind of tie it all together, I thought. Thanks. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was one of my favorite trips actually was going down to St. Remy and seeing um, where Van Gogh had been and uh, trying to imagine, you know, what, what it was like for him, what he'd experienced. And he painted, um, you know, several views of the night sky. It was really important for him. And uh, I tell this story and actually I have a couple of great pictures of this. He has another painting called uh, starry night on the Rhone. Yes. Um, and, uh, it's so, you know, just a beautiful picture of the night sky and um, with a, there's a couple walking along the, along the river below him. And I told the story that the Big Dipper is in the painting and astronomers have figured out that actually the Big Dipper was behind Van Gogh that night. It wasn't. So he used a little <laughs> bit of artistic license there. Uh. Um, but the main thing was that when you go to the site, uh, where they say Van Gogh um, stood to paint it or to take notes to paint it and that kind of thing, you're blinded by the artificial lights um, that are there now. So uh, Van Gogh, you know, couldn't have painted his painting now. It's just that um, we've we've done away with that opportunity for all the young Van Goghs out there. Mm. So you're going to have to, well, as as you and both John point out, you're going to have to, there's a necessity of of leaving your neighborhood to go find these places. Have you seen that, by the way, along these lines, have you seen the, uh, we have this in our book, uh, the picture, uh, I think it was an amateur astronomer had, had taken pictures from the Juno satellite um, mm. uh, that Juno had taken of Jupiter's cloud tops, mm. all these swirly blues and greens and things. And she superimposed it onto Starry Night. So she mm. took the village that Van Gogh had painted and replaced Van Gogh's stars with the swirly cloud tops of Jupiter. Wow. And it's nearly, you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. You should look it up. It's really wonderful. Um, but you, you touched on earlier in, in, when you talked to the, to the chaplain in Northern Wisconsin, um, I, I loved, I, I connected it for me as a believer. I made this connection where, it, it, you know, in scripture, Jesus is described prophetically in the book of Isaiah as a man of sorrows. And then you look at uh, his appearance at, at Lazarus's tomb where Lazarus is dead and all of his friends are crying. And, and here it is, the creator of the universe, mm. uh, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Mm. And I think, you know, that, that the way you tied everything together in that book really sort of exegetically made it more alive that mm. the creator of the stars could, could weep tears. And I mm. thought that was just, it was just wonderful how that, how that would really sort of brought it home for me to, to be reminded of that. There's nothing wrong with melancholy. There's nothing wrong with sorrow um, and there's nothing wrong. And I think for me, as one who is a melancholy, I, I find great peace when I go out in my backyard and I just sit under the stars and I, I just gaze. I don't have, I have a telescope, but um, just the reflection of, of, of the fact that uh, what, what David says in Psalm 8, you know, when he looked at the stars, he said, well, who am I, God, that you're mindful of me uh, and the son of man that you care for me. But, but I think your book really, uh, though I, I'm sure you weren't in, intentionally writing a, a Christian treatise on the universe, the the idea though <laughs> was was very poetically inspiring and encouraging to me. So I just kind of wanted to share that with you how you, how that helped me 
derive some encouragement out of your book. It was great. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I, I think, you know, you're, you're seeing what at least uh, subconsciously I intended. I think, you know, those, those, it's, it's just all woven together, you know, uh, what the experience of being out on a natural night and understanding the value of darkness and those things um, is woven together with our, just our experience of being alive on the planets and, and asking questions about existence and wrestling with faith and, and all those things. They're just, they're, um, they're completely connected. And, and I think, specifically to something we were talking about earlier, which I didn't actually know about until I started researching the book um, mm. is how many you've met, you've kind of touched on this, but how many uh, stories um, in the Bible are take place at night and how yes. important night is for, you know, for the, for those stories that, that so many people uh, hold dear. And I think we really, we've lost touch with that. We've lost, you know, just the importance of that time for, for these kinds of experiences, for reflection, for melancholy, for sorrows. Um, and indeed, you know, sorrow and sadness and melancholy are, you could call them a type of darkness, um, but a healthy, natural type of darkness that, um, I don't know, we've, it's like we've become afraid of them, like we've become afraid of, the literal dark and I, and we um, it's, it's, it's our loss uh, really. Mm. Um, I, I see a correlation and I, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm putting people down for this, but I see a correlation between our culture's scientific ethos and dealing with sadness um, yeah. s- sort of prescribe it and, and, and do away with sadness. It, exactly. it's almost like sadness is a disease mm-hmm. uh, and with the artificial light and the, the, the quantity versus the quality, it almost seems like darkness, physical darkness seems like to us a disease as well mm-hmm. uh, that it's very uncomfortable to dwell silently in physical darkness. Uh, yeah. We are, you know, and I started to ask myself too, Paul, as I'm reading this, I'm like, why am I afraid of natural darkness? Mm-hmm. it is an irrational fear like mm-hmm. like a fear of spiders and snakes you're like <laughs> so what why am i afraid i mean it's not going to bite me um I, i've lived 51 years through uh, many a dark night um mm-hmm. nothing has happened um you know no, nothing the childhood fear seems to stay with us though mm-hmm. uh did you find in your research that people generally shared this phobia of physical darkness Absolutely. Uh, I think this fear of darkness um, drives light pollution, honestly. I think that, uh, mm. and, and people will, you know, they'll deny it or they'll laugh it off or, or what have you. But when it comes down to it, um, we really are afraid of the dark. And so mm. uh, you'll see it and talk to any anyone who's involved in um trying to, you know, deal with the problem of light pollution. When you, when you raise the issue of, you know, that we might be using, overusing and misusing artificial light at night, that we're, you know, we're not saying that light is bad. You know, we're saying, we're just saying we use too much of it. We use it wastefully. It's, you know, even dangerously. And sometimes just the sort of, um, boy, just uh, the response to it really seems to belie the, this fear of dark, like, we need all this light to be safe and secure, you know, and, and 
and we'll say, well, actually, you know, we don't need it. You know, there's, there's no research that, um, that really backs up saying that making things ever brighter makes us ever safer, all those things. But you can, um, you can talk about that as much as you want, but at the end of the day, people just come back to this sort of basic fear, uh, like we talked about before, that light is good and darkness is bad. Mm, mm. And it's such a, and I think once you begin to, as you say so often in the book, indirectly, uh, get out and experience this and, and your perception mm-hmm. of natural darkness um, begins to change. It's not going to be something you can snap your fingers at and, and just do away with. And it's not just, hey, turn down those lights so I can see Andromeda. Mm-hmm. Um, this is much more of an ecological, not just a scientific or environmental issue. This is dealing with our very health as human beings and for all the rest of the biological species on the planet. Um, this overabundance of brightness is not healthy. Uh, and you have a whole chapter on, and I thought it was very insightful, mm-hmm. about um, people through their uh, circadian rhythms, working overnights, working the graveyard shift, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, a great chapter and in insights of, of the health of, of biological life of our lives in terms of living in an age of 24 seven um, nightlife. What medically, what have you, what did you, what surprised you about this? I think what surprised me is that um, the folks that I talked to talked about how um, we're really just learning about the negative effects of artificial light on our physical health. Um, Mm. I have one guy who um, is a Harvard uh, researcher told me that he felt like we were with artificial light about where we were with smoking um, say in the fifties. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, we're just, the sign, you know, the signs point to this not being good for us, but, um, but that hasn't really made it into the mainstream yet. Um, a biologist said to me, and I think this is what I often come back to. He just said, you know, life, life on earth evolved with bright days and dark nights, and we need both for optimal health. And so I heard many people say we're essentially running an experiment on ourselves. You know, what happens when we flood our nights with artificial light? What does it do to our bodies? Um, Hmm. And what we know so far um, is that it um, disrupts our circadian rhythms. um, And folks might probably have heard that term before, but um, essentially if you think of the body and all the organs as a, as an orchestra, this exposure to artificial light at night kind of um, uh, confuses the conductor. And then that, confuses all the inst- all the in- other instrument player all the mm. other musicians you know so it just mm. kind of messes with your with your health it um it uh, impacts our sleep and contributes to sleep disorders and uh, mm. that's a um, huge problem and in- growing bigger um and then it seems to um we know that exposure to light at night impedes the production of melatonin and mm. this uh, lack of melatonin in your in our bloodstream has been linked to um, an increased risk for breast and prostate cancer. So um, it, it just, it, like I said, it, it just, even if we haven't figured out, we haven't done all the research we need to understand what's happening, um, we can still just think uh, life evolved um, uh, in darkness as ha- you know, half the time and that we, 
we need it for optimal health. So, well, and you think of uh, the agrarian, obvious agrarian analogy, where uh, you put seeds in the ground, and ninety percent of their life they they spend in darkness before they sprout. You need the darkness of the loamy soil to get a seed to get going. Um, very essential that it's not fully exposed to sunlight all the time because you won't have crops. And so like a seed in the ground, so too must we spend time in melancholy metaphorical darkness and, and physical darkness. Our bodies require this kind of rest. So it's not just birds or moths flying into to light poles and, and bug lights. It's human beings are misdirected by this 24 seven uh, presence of, of artificial light. Absolutely. And it, you know, disrupts our creative process as well. You know, yes. anybody who uh, is creative in any way in their life understands that it a lot of times takes time for, we have to germinate as well. Our ideas have to germinate our, our, our artistic, uh, any kind of creation needs time to germinate in that kind of time when you can't see where you're headed. Yes. The, 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 the many times in scripture, you see the the somebody that God has chosen uh, struggling through some sort of, uh, you know, darkness, whether they can't see or whether they're blinded by something, they're afraid, the storms. Uh, I think of God's presence with the Israelites in, the, in Sinai. How did he appear to them at night through a pillar of fire? Um, you know, and so, like you said, that the darkness has a work uh, that is necessary for our, for our own biological health. Um, one of the things that you're you're pointing out about light pollution in your book reminded me of the medieval model of the cosmos, and I wanted to just mention briefly. There's a book uh, by uh, you know who C.S. Lewis is, I'm sure. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, he was a Christian apologist and a literary scholar at Oxford, but he wrote a book. His last book before he died in 1963 was called the discarded image. And he's writing about the history of the medieval model of the cosmos, the geocentric model. And uh, there's a lot of mythical stories being told and retold about what the medievals believed about geocentrism. And Lewis does a good job of pointing out that a geocentric earth was not necessarily a pretty earth. Uh, He quotes a philosopher by the name of Macrobius from the fourth and the beginning of the fifth century who basically gives a pretty good outline of the way in which medievals tended to view the earth, that the heavens were clean and pure and that, that they were sort of, God had sort of cleaned them and purged them. And so there's a perfection in the celestial sphere and that all that was fluid and gross uh, was, was peeled off, washed off, if you will. And all of that detritus from the celestial realm fell to earth uh, and this goes along with Aristotle's elements that, you know, that naturally elements will find their way to the center. And so the earth was kind of a dirty place. Um, it, it wasn't this pristine and perfect throne. Any life below the moon was sort of chaotic and dirty and whatever. But it, it, it talks about uh, the pollution, the offscurrings of creation, because, in the, of course, in the Christian scriptures, you know, sin has, has caused us all to go wrong. And so down here on earth, there's a pollution. It's not just in the heavens, but it's just this impurity of being able to see, not having the enlightenment to know the heavens are perfect. But it reminded me of, in general, uh, a kind of medieval view, the light pollution did, a kind of medieval view that life down here is kind of dirty. And, mm-hmm. and it seems to be our charge as stewards of creation to correct that. 
And I think that, that your book really does sort of address something. You know, we think of polluted rivers. You talk about the Thames a little bit. And we think of the environment and all the toxic chemicals and, and, and smoke and those kinds of pollutions. But this is another kind of pollution that is really having a silent but deleterious effect upon us. And I, I thought that, uh, that it really just kind of was, was a reminder to me of the, of the medieval model and the, the mess that uh, a lot of medievals saw about our, about our own place in the universe. But your book was kind of a breath of fresh air. Let's go out and find the clean spots, you know, and, and, and let's preserve them just like a river or an ocean. We need our skies to be clean uh, and, and, and to give us uh, clear eyes so that we can see and contemplate. I think you have a quote from um, John Muir about nature giving us places to play and places to pray. I love that. That was great. What would you recommend if somebody's hearing this for the first time going, gosh, I want to do this. Uh, I'd, I'd like to go on this adventure. How can I participate? Where would you have people to, to start? That's a great question. Uh, and it, it, you know, it depends on where folks live uh, and, and what their, you know, their ability to, um, to move, for example. Um, I know, you know, for some people, uh, going to the local planetarium in the city where they live is a great place to start. Mm. Um, for others, you know, others are able to jump in the car and, and drive out to uh, some place where the lights might be a little um, less obvious, uh, or even you know, some place um, some folks are able to get to. Uh, you know, one place I'd love to go is I've never actually been is is headed is down your way a little bit which is big bend national yes. park um, yes they have some of the best skies in the lower 48 um, yes so i think you know I, I often i often want to make the point that um i'm not saying in the book that you know um it night is only great if you're in you know a bordel scale one or two you know <laughs> place where it's you know just unbelievably dark like i Night can be beautiful and, and um, open your eyes uh, in the city. You know, just uh, right now, for example, um, there's a waxing gibbous moon in the sky. And, mm -hmm. and you know, if, if it's a clear night, uh, especially, boy, tonight and the next couple of nights, um, if folks are aware, just the moon is going to rise. It's going to be so beautiful. And uh, just get out wherever you are. Get out and enjoy uh, the night. I think that's a wonderful wonderful place to start. I loved what you said, the little vignette about uh, the park ranger at the National Natural Bridges Park in uh, mm -hmm. Utah. He led mm -hmm. a group of about 25 people out there and he said, ladies and gentlemen, the moon. <laughs> and then right behind him, the moon rose on cue. <laughs> and people are like, whoa, how did you do that? You know, yeah. the, the wonder of it is, is that you know, people, we've been predicting when the moon rises for, for centuries now. <laughs> right, exactly. It, for some people, they just think it's random, you know, but it's yeah. quite right. quite right. But, but that, that just goes to show you how simplistically wonderful it is to be mm -hmm. so in tune with nature that you can impress a group of people like that, you know, yep. Yep. The, the, that our, our basic common knowledge, you know, I, I am a nerd. I, mm -hmm. I have uh, 
attempted to to know all the bright stars in the sky for every season, the biggest ones, the brightest ones. Yeah. And I, I bring my friends over when I can to have a to stargaze and whatever. And I point out star names and they're like, well, just like I'm looking at me like I'm like I've got I just grew horns or something. It's like, why do you even bother with, with mm. star name? I'm like, mm-hmm. well, well, why? Why not? You know, yeah. we know we know the names of celebrities. Yeah. I give a talk in churches sometimes where I have a picture of the city of Los Angeles at night um, and there's no stars in the sky. It's completely star blind. And I ask the, I begin the the, the talk with, okay, ladies and gentlemen, where are the stars? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) We know about all the ones in the city here, uh, Mm -hmm. but we don't know. uh, I think it was Emerson who said uh, a man in the street does not know a star in the sky. Mm. And, you know, it's not, I don't do it to, to be superior or anything, but I, it's a contemplative exercise of remembering and contemplating and considering uh, for me as a Christian, what God has made. And it just, it just, it's, mm. it's a wonderful exercise. There's Beetlejuice, there's Doob, there's Merak, there's Al-Qaeda, yeah. uh, there's Mintaka, there's Rigel, uh, there's Scorpion, there's the Antares, you know, and just yeah. they're friendly. There's a book I love, um, uh, that was written in the early 19th, early 20th century called the friendly stars. Mm. And uh, she describes Mary Martha Evans, I think it is. And she describes Mm. stars as though they have a personality. It's not astrological or horoscope ish like that. Mm. It's just the way she describes it. Each star in its color and its brightness and where it is and showing us the way and the seasons that there is a, uh, there is a, an anthropomorphic friendliness to, to, to the essence of stars that we, they, there's a comfort to them in some sense. Did you find that, that in your travels and talking with people that they derive a lot of solace, it seems from, from just stargazing in this regard? Yeah, I think absolutely. One of the um, stories that I remember the most is I was doing a radio interview a few years ago and um, talking about the, the night sky and, and uh, a guy called in, I think he was from uh, Oklahoma. And he said, you know, when I was growing up um, things at home were, were often tough. And uh, you know, I used to, um, when things got too bad, I would jump in my truck and drive out, out of the town and, you know, under the, where I could get out under the stars and just hop up on the hood of the truck and, and lie back. You know, just it was that sense of solace, that sense of, you know, mm-hmm. being able to gain a perspective and know that, um, you know, there's something else out there um, mm. and that um, his world wasn't only the, you know, whatever was going on at home that was that was difficult. And um, again, I think that's that's a good example of what the stars have always given us that that, you know, that solace and that perspective and um to be able to look up and, and see something so beautiful and, and uh, just overwhelming. And, um, and, and to now to think that, um, you know, eight of 10 kids born today will never live where they can see the Milky way, which just, you know, mm. boggles the mind. And, mm. and so many of us have just never really seen the stars. We've seen some stars, um, you know, a couple dozen or whatever, but we've never really seen the night sky as, as yeah. it should, should look. And, uh, and what have we lost? You know, what are we losing? Um, uh, but, uh, you know, 
the great thing about this issue is that it's something that we can all readily do something about that it, it is um you know in some senses just shielding our lights turning our lights off that kind of thing and and the night sky hasn't gone anywhere it's it's still up there it's just that uh right. we put something between us well you know it's interesting you you talk today with people and they ask you have you seen this movie mm. and they're they're shocked that you haven't seen mm-hmm. star wars or some Netflix series. You haven't seen that? Right. And you ask them if they've ever seen the Milky Way or the stars are like, Psh, no, right. but who cares? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's really weird. Our, I always use the metaphor that we're, we're fixated on the wrong stars. We we're, uh, we're, we're enamored with, with, uh, you know, our screens and our celebrities. Um, but we, we don't know the stars. Um, I wanted to, I know some of my listeners and oftentimes, you know, as you know, um, you live in Minneapolis and mm. that, that's been in the headlines um, this mm. last week, tragically. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to sort of address this because it's come up a few times that in a world of chaos, you know, we've had the coronavirus before this and then and now these, the, the George Floyd and all of this uh, urban chaos that we've, we've been seeing it seems like we're two fuddy duddies wasting time talking about something completely irrelevant. But um, in your book, you talk to a gentleman by the name of Ken Lamberton mm-hmm. lived in Southeast Arizona, who was in prison for a while. Um, you, you didn't ask him what for, but he was out. And uh, at the end of this chapter, you quote Ken and he says, we live in our own little cells, our own little prisons that we create ourselves uh, and then he says, when you're locked up, you dream of freedom. And mm-hmm. and he says, I like the idea that it's not real wilderness unless there's something out there that can eat you. <laughs> <laughs> but but you saw, I saw and heard through Ken this deep appreciation for, okay, I had this taken away from me. Yeah, I had I had lost my freedom. I had given up on this. But now, part of his rehabilitation really seems to be having encountered being out in and among natural darkness in the stars. And so there seems to be a genuine rehabilitative aspect to contemplating nature, darkness, and the night sky that can certainly help us to redeem us where we are in our culture. Would you say so as somebody who's living in the midst of a city that's on fire? Oh, sure. It makes uh, perfect sense to me. I think, um, you know, when we can't see the stars, when we look up and it's just uh, light pollution, um, we just, we, we lose sense of the possibilities. We lose sense of perspective. We think that we are all that matters. Um, you know, we think the focus of the universe is, is <laughs> on us. Um, yes. And, you know, you compare that with looking up and seeing so many stars, you can't count them all. And just all of a sudden you think like, all right, uh, my problems aren't, the center of the universe and mm. uh, you know i'm one among countless others and all those things it's just it, it um again it's it's just that perspective and we and we've lost it um mm. but i think could uh could help us so much in these times and as we go forward and and uh well we've got some big some big problems um on the horizon or even you know that we're already engaging with and we're going to need uh, all those uh, opportunities for solace and perspective. We're going to need every opportunity we can get. Yeah. Those kinds of things. It seems like uh, I just uh, recently, probably permanently uh, rescinded my uh, social media use because I was 
I was, uh, I used it to promote my book last year, but then it sort of became an addiction, but I was, I was finding myself more and more unable to pry myself away from Facebook. And, uh, as much as I love stargazing, there were nights here in Texas, ashamedly, I admit where I'm like on Twitter instead of out underneath the stars. And, uh, I was thinking as I was reading the chapter about Ken and just now that, you know, what if Minneapolis turned off all the city lights all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. you know, and people were face to face with the the night sky uh, in a way they've never seen. But the idea that we need, as you just say, the only way through something like this is through solitude, Mm -hmm. contemplation, a slow progressive thinking about our place in the universe and our duties to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be solved in 240 characters. It's not going to be solved on a Facebook post. It's not going to be solved on our computers. Um, your book really was a reminder to me of the necessity of our incarnate participation with nature. Mm-hmm. It really, it really is. It really uh, attests to that as well. Um, so I think, I think this is a great, if you can't go out and do what Paul did, uh, you should at least go out and get Paul's book, uh, the, <laughs> the End of Night: Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've certainly given me some bucket list parks to visit. Uh, I've been through Death Valley, but I, I want to go and see the stars in Death Valley. Um, I've been planning to go to Big Ben for a long time. Mm-hmm. We have another, actually, we have an another international dark sky park uh, here in North Texas, just near the Red River. Uh, just on the other side of the Red River near Lawton, Oklahoma. It's uh, in Quanta, Texas. It's uh-huh. um, called Copper Breaks State Park. And they, un- unfortunately right now, because of the, the virus and the stages of reopening the state, the park's only open during the daytime, but they hopefully will be resuming dark skies. But it is a, it is a gold tier. I, I don't know. I think it's a Bortle 2 mm. night sky. And I, I was out there last summer for the first time with a friend and, you know, that wonderful, and I'm sure you've seen this a hundred times, you see Earthrise coming over the, the, uh, in the east, the earth shadow, the purples, the blues, the patiently waiting, and then the one or two stars maybe from the dipper start to appear, and then you see Sirius, and then you see Betelgeuse, and then you see, the, you start to see the Pleiades, and then Aldebaran if, if, you're, if it's in the, the winter or fall skies. Uh, but then you're there for about an hour, two hours, and then suddenly it's like you could reach up and pick stars out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Just the most phenomenal sight. I, and I've seen a lot of stars have been all over the place, but not quite like I saw that night in Quanah. It's just absolutely beautiful. IDA has a list of the dark sky parks that they've authorized. Yeah. And that's a great site just for all the things that we're talking about, the mm-hmm. darksky.org. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely would encourage people to go there. And the national parks are playing a really important role as well. They have a night skies and I think it's, they blend uh, sound and um, so light pollution and and noise pollution together. Um, And they, they're really taking this issue of preserving darkness seriously. Mm -hmm. And I like what you say on, uh, on your chapter called come together. You're talking to uh, Cipriano, who is the, what did he do? Is he in Morocco? What was on the Canary yeah, Islands? Uh, Canary Islands, yeah. Canary Islands, yeah. Mr. Cipriano, he says, it's the same vision, a cathedral to connect the man with God. Sometimes people say, here is like a monastery because you are in a very isolated place. You are contemplating the sky. And uh, that's just a wonderful uh, connection between the heavens and the earth, I thought. 
uh, a beautiful way to to connect the two. Paul, I want to thank you so much for taking uh, an hour of your busy gardening day today. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are 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 safe and doing well in in, in Minneapolis, and uh, I hope and pray you guys can continue to 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 heal and to to come out of that. And um, it's it's this is a great opportunity to do community. I mean, I see no better way to bring people together or one good way to bring people together is to have a star party, um, find a place and a dark sky and sit down and, and contemplate with people what's going on above us. It's really a, a wonderful book, but a, a very well-written book, Paul, a, a wonderful adventure I hope to take one day myself. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I was like, oh, I want to go there. Oh, I want to go there. Um <laughs> But to wrap up, I want to I want to read that uh, stanza from the poem and give you some some final words and 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 have uh, yourself explain more about how people can get in touch with what you're doing. Uh, you quote Wendell Berry that you carried with you a poem that you carried with you while you were writing the book. You say uh, Berry says quote to go in the dark with the light is to know the light, to know the dark go dark go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. I thought that was wonderful. And uh, just want to give you an opportunity to maybe comment on what that meant for you and then um, share with people how they can find out more about your work. Yeah, I mean, I love that poem. As, as we talked about Wendell Berry, a wonderful uh, uh, national treasure, really, um, for yeah. us. And uh, um, I always start my talks by reading the poem and just say, you know, let's, you know, go dark. Uh, that's uh, go into the darkness and explore the darkness. And mm. uh, there's richness and life um, and beauty to be found. And, um, and that's what the book is about. So um, yeah, I, I and I would invite people to, um, I have a website, which is uh, Paul hyphen Bogard dot com. And um invite people. I mean, if they just Google my name or Google the end of nights, um, they'll, they'll find me. Um, be happy to hear from folks. Um, and, uh, the book, the book that came after the end of night is a book called the ground beneath us, which is, um, I like to say sometimes it's essentially the end of night, but looking down. So it's just Uh, uh, the beauty of the world, um, at our feet uh, as well. So, um, always happy to you know hear from folks and uh just always happy to talk about this issue and encourage folks to get out and and um get to know the value of of darkness um so many so many riches and beauties and uh it'll it'll uh, enhance your life right it, it's like a it's like a long treatise on the on the question that God asks Job at the end of the book of Job do you know the ordinances of the heavens, mm-hmm. you know, and the, of course it's a rhetorical question. And the answer is no, <laughs> it is for most of us. Right. I mean, even with all of our advanced scientific knowledge of the universe, there is so much that we leave undone or unnoticed or unexplored. Mm-hmm. All right, Paul, well, thank you so much. And um, if you're ever speaking on this topic again, I just wanted to let you know of a poem. Are you familiar with uh, Wendell Berry's, uh, collected Sabbath poems. I'm not actually. It's called a book. I'm sure you can get it in paperback now. I got it several years ago. It's called This Day, Collected mm. and New Sabbath Poems. 
and it's all about poems about rest and Sabbath and, you know, agrarian metaphor and parable, darkness, seed planting, farming, uh, starlight. It's, it's wonderful. Um, but there's a poem uh, he wrote, I think it's from uh, the chapter, it's 1994. It begins with a man is lying on a bed and it's just a, a sort of a pilgrimage of, of being alone in the dark. And, and it's, it's a wonderful uh, book, but I think you'll find if you really like that one poem, I think you will, you will treasure this volume um, called This Day, Wendell Berry's Collected in New Sabbath Poems, if you're interested. That sounds great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, Paul. Thank you so much. Your book was wonderful. Um, Paul Bogart, The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. Thank you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says. But do the heavens matter to us any more today? What does scripture mean when it says the heavens declare the glory of God? How can a biblical perspective of the universe fit within the paradigms of modern science? How can a deeper understanding of the universe strengthen and encourage your faith? Find out by putting good heavens in your podcast subscription list today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dave Mitchell.